On November 7th of last year, the night before the 2016 presidential election, Andrea Weiss, an associate professor of the Bible at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, attended a Hillary Clinton rally in Philadelphia with her husband and their 12-year-old son. After months, a year even, of a disheartening and deeply divisive election season, Andrea felt hopeful. So we're sitting there. There's a, you know, African-American women behind me. There's a white guy with his Asian girlfriend. There's, you know, just all, all sorts of people, you know, such diversity, just even just around us there. And, you know, I just felt like it was so reaffirming and just thinking, this is what America looks like. Just 24 hours later, the results came in. Donald Trump the 45th president of the United States of America. And that scene Andrea described of a diverse America made up of all different races and religions, suddenly it was falling apart. And maybe it was that feeling of seeing her fellow Americans pitted against each other that made something snap in Andrea, that made this election feel like a more personal loss than a traditional Democrat-Republican face-off. We don't know for sure what it was, but maybe that matters less than what happened next. Andrea did something about it. She founded American Values Religious Voices, 100 Days, 100 Letters, a project meant to remind the Trump administration of the religious values and voices that may have been drowned out during the presidential election. The idea behind that is that we are sending a letter a day for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Uh, The letters are aimed to articulate core American values that are connected to our various religious traditions, and the letters are addressed to the president, vice president, members of the cabinet, and um, the 115th Congress. Andrea is Jewish, but the letters are written by religious scholars from various faiths. They're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and Sikh. You get the idea. Really, the idea behind the interfaith aspect, one of the animating visions of the project was to get together a diverse group of 100 scholars and I had this image of putting all their pictures on one page, which we actually have on the homepage of the website, in a grid, and that that would really show that's really what America looks like, you know, basis of all different colors and ages and religions, and that's sort of the, the beautiful mosaic that is really what makes America great. We spoke to Andrea because, while experiencing the same national events as the rest of the country, she chose to create change. Andrea and her team at Values and Voices are an example of how to deal with a huge problem using an interfaith approach. And that word, interfaith, is what makes Andrea's project impactful, what makes it more than just the manifestation of her personal anxieties. Because this problem, the threat Trump's administration poses to Americans, is bigger than the sorts of problems we encounter within our own communities. It isn't bounded by the geographic, social, and cultural parameters that define the other issues we grapple with. And to address a problem like that, to really get closer to a solution and a better world, your answers have to be bigger than just you. Andrea could have just sent her own letters to the Trump administration. Or she could have invited some of her Jewish colleagues to do so with her. But she didn't. Because this project had to come from a community larger than her own. More perspectives needed to be heard. Values and Voices represents a massive interfaith project, a platform where religious voices from a myriad of different communities are expressed and are received by a respectful, thoughtful, and engaged audience. It's hard to overstate how incredible that is, what a huge kind of statement that inclusion and collaboration makes on its own. It's a dialogue that's meant to unite Americans, despite their differences and because of them. 
But the rest of this episode isn't about the American presidential election. Instead, we address a much larger problem, one that has been building for centuries and threatens to implicate and perhaps destroy all of humankind. I'm Sarah Wyman, this is Global Voices, and today we tackle climate change. Communicating Climate Change This podcast will not dispute the reality of climate change. As far as we're concerned, it's happening. If you have more questions about that or want to learn more about any of the facts and figures referenced in this podcast, we encourage you to visit climate.nasa.gov. One way I heard it described well was sort of like... But to really understand the scope of climate change in today's world, Holt and I spoke with climate scientist Bryce Mitsunaga, who works with UCLA professor Aradna Tripathi studying carbon cycle climate interactions, paleoclimate, and geological oceanography. Bryce's research is in paleoclimates, which is a fancy way of saying that he looks at ancient climates to better understand what the environment looked like a long time ago and to make projections about what it might do in the future. As for how screwed we are... It's kind of interesting, if you look at a map of the world, where who's making the most greenhouse gases, and then who's sort of going to feel the brunt of global warming's negative effects, um, the emitters are mostly the industrialized countries, you know, uh, North America, Europe, um, Russia, China, and then the sort of countries that are going to hit the worst are sort of, you know, the middle equator, where it's already warm. And where, you know, another 10 degrees is enough to just cause many things to go wrong. Um, well, it's Africa, India, Southeast Asia, um, South America, more or less. So it's kind of interesting. The, the diversity of people are causing it and people are most affected. There's, a, there's an offset there. Besides sea levels and extreme weather events, hmm. are there any um, other more subtle effects of climate change that your average person wouldn't necessarily know? For example, I, I think one of the, the kind of, I don't say the coolest examples, but just most relevant um, is Syria, which, you know, most people don't think of that as a climate-related issue, right? They think of that as just Assad being a jerk or whatever. But the, the summer or two before a lot of the very first protests broke out happened to be just one of the worst droughts they've ever seen. And that sort of famine is what kicked off a lot of the protests, which then, you know, the, the military starts shooting protesters and imprisoning people. And then that's that's sort of what accelerated it. But would it have happened in the first place without this sort of climate change uh, intensified drought and famine? Who knows? It made it worse, right? This is the, made it more likely to happen in the first place. is a researcher. His job isn't to talk to people like us about climate change, and his livelihood doesn't depend on making people care about the fact that it's happening. His job is to collect and examine data, to make predictions, to draw graphs and present them at academic conferences. But the Tripathi Lab is special. It seems like a really fun place to work, not what you might first think of when you hear the words clumped isotope geochemistry. Professor Tripathi guest starred in a parody segment about climate change on Jimmy Kimmel Live earlier this year. 
Her lab has named their equipment after Star Wars characters. There's a new perspective IS mass spectrometer named R2-D2, and they call their homemade auto sampler and gas purification system the Sarlacc. I have no idea what either of those instruments do, but somehow seeing their impressive, complicated names lined up next to Star Wars characters on Professor Tripathi's website made me feel like she wanted me to get it. Like her lab's research was closer to me than all those multisyllabic, sciencey words had made it seem. Yeah, naming the equipment brings some levity to the work environment, but it also serves a more focused purpose of engaging and communicating with the non-science community, the rest of the world. Bryce likes working in Professor Tripathi's lab. He appreciates that she's so outreach-focused, that she encourages him and his colleagues to do things like work with high schoolers who visit the lab, teach courses about science communication, and be interviewed for podcasts. Bryce may be a scientist, but he's also a communicator. He worries about how to make people care about his work and each other in a changing world. A lot of the ways that people sort of experience climate change on day to day is not necessarily these long-term graphs that the scientists make. A lot of it is the extreme events, right? That That's a heat wave is what makes you take notice, not like a tenth of a degree increase year to year. I'm not much a psychologist, but I think a lot of it boils down to basic human, our, our caveman brains, right? We're not, we're really bad about thinking about the future. You know, um, 20 years in the future is, is really hard for us, much less 50 or 100. So that's kind of why I think Katrina, you know, uh, things like that are, are better at capturing people's imaginations and getting them to think about this better than a graph, right? Not that I want more disasters to happen, <laughs> but maybe, you know, framing these disasters as climate-caused events would get to people better. Or maybe it wouldn't. Communication is hard, you know, science communication is really hard, and <laughs> we have to get much better at it, but I, I'm not sure how. Part 2. Ground Zero, Bangladesh. In 2010, National Geographic named Bangladesh the most vulnerable nation to the impacts of climate change over the next 30 years. Bangladesh's low coastal and inland elevations, combined with severe poverty, high population density, and limited government capacity make it extremely susceptible to the negative effects of climate change. Both rising sea levels and more extreme weather patterns are critical issues in Bangladesh. According to the United Nations Environment Program and most climate modeling experts, massive sea level rise in Bangladesh is inevitable. A rise of 1.5 meters alone, which is less than 5 feet, would put 22,000 kilometers squared of land underwater and displace 18 million people, 15% of the population, and 16% of the land mass. For context, that's the equivalent of Texas and California going underwater compared to the size of the United States. That land becomes completely unusable and unrecoverable. Even shallow levels of seawater prevent any type of farming or production throughout. And these are traumatic events for the people that are living there. They're already having to cope with the negative repercussions of climate change. To learn more about the way climate change is affecting Bangladesh and its population, we spoke to UCLA alum Erica Jahan, who used to be the editor-in-chief of The Generation. 
Erica's family is Bangladeshi, and many of her extended family members currently live in Bangladesh. She also lived in Bangladesh for a few years growing up. We first asked Erica how she believes Bangladeshis think about climate change. In Bangladesh, it's a large percent of the population is living on the poverty line or close to it, and therefore their concerns on a daily basis, their discourse is not going to be around climate change. It's going to be more around my soil that I was trying to grow crops on has been completely washed out because of salt water, etc., from rising sea levels, or um, my home has been destroyed because of you know this flood that keeps just getting worse and worse. So that's kind of more what you hear on a daily conversational with most people. Erica spoke about the impacts of these events on human beings. It may be easy to look at a graphic and say that 18 million people are going to have to pack up and leave their home and likely their careers and communities due to rising sea levels. It's hard to understand what that actually means. Imagine your state or region is told that over the next 20 or 30 years, the entire area will become uninhabitable and everyone will have to leave. Where do you go? How do you find a job? How do you support your family? The human impact is sometimes lost when talking about the global effects of climate change. But really, it is the most important part. I mean, I think as far as climate goes, I think it would be ideal if you could just stop talking about whether or not it's happening and what the human impact is, and start looking at what the impact on human beings is. If you can't get over the first part of the conversation, just start focusing on the fact that a drought means not enough food, which means migration, which means conflict between populations, which means war. Start thinking about it in those terms, and maybe it'll be easier for certain people to get their heads around, and for certain groups to start taking more, I guess, um, more action towards it. There's another significant aspect of Bangladesh that we didn't mention. Bangladesh is a Muslim-majority country, hosting around 150 million people, 90% of whom are Muslims. We asked Erica whether religion plays a role in how Bangladeshis go about dealing with extreme environmental events and corresponding cultural changes. Initially, my instinct was to think religion probably gets in the way because they think of religion as going against science in some ways. And then I did some more research, like, oh, actually, that's not necessarily the case. I wouldn't say that those two things are necessarily really opposed to each other. Um, Steve Commons, who's, I think, one of our professors, perhaps you've had him, I think the way that he talked about violence and also about climate and also about all these things we consider disasters and so on that are currently happening or might happen, more or less he says that disasters aren't they don't happen, they're made, they're managed or not managed. So I think when it comes down to religion, it's one of those things, as you mentioned, that could be used at a community level to actually help mobilize people to be conscientious about these issues, to kind of get along with each other when immigration is happening and intersections are happening. Um, but potentially it could also be used in the exact opposite way, right? So in Southeast Asia, Bangladesh borders India. Um, Bangladesh used to be a part of Pakistan, but is no longer and does not share a border with Pakistan. So I think we can project Bangladeshis will be moving into India in the relatively near future. One of the issues with that, um, while India does have a massive Muslim population, there are serious cultural and religious tensions between Hindus and Muslims in India, um, not to mention the tension between India and Pakistan. It seems as though many Bangladeshis will move through India towards Pakistan. 
One of the issues there is that it creates spaces of lawlessness for refugees moving through countries without help uh, or without a plan of how to move through the country, where to stay, how to be fed. This transient migration pattern creates issues both for India and the refugees and will exacerbate tensions between India and Pakistan. Once the refugees potentially arrive in Pakistan, the country does not have the capacity to deal with tens of millions of people. It will not matter that tens of millions of culturally connected Bangladeshis, who are also Muslim, will be coming in because the Pakistani government does not have the resources or the capital to support and engage these climate refugees. So projecting outside of Southeast Asia, the states with the best capacity to support refugees, and especially these climate refugees, tend to be Western European countries and the United States, which are Christian-majority countries. You can't frame climate change as only a political or economic problem, a reshuffling of big numbers of people that will be quickly relocated, like cells in an Excel spreadsheet of the world's population. Erica reminds us that individuals, Families and communities will be adversely affected by climate change in a variety of ways. Existing cultural and religious tensions will affect where and how people move when climate pushes them out of their homes, and ultimately, their ability to integrate into new environments. It's important to understand these factors and adopt a holistic approach in planning for climate refugees. Part three, Arthene is green. We borrowed that expression from my friend Asma Mahdi, who, in addition to being an awesome person generally speaking, is the communications director for the Sustainable LA Grand Challenge at UCLA and the interim director of Green Muslims, a faith-based environmental nonprofit. But more on that later. There are a few things you need to know about Asma. First, she's incredibly passionate about the environment and sustainability. And for Asma, that cause is deeply personal. She understands the connection between Earth, herself, and her faith better than any person I've ever met. And her commitment to protecting the environment and the life it harbors, including human beings, is inspiring. Asma cares deeply about the types of issues more people should probably be paying attention to. And she has a knack for bringing out the same passion in the people around her. And that brings me to my second point. A friend of mine once told me that you interact with two kinds of people in this world, people who drain energy from you and people who exude it, leaving you feeling empowered, better prepared to do whatever it is you need to do after you've spoken to them. Asma indisputably belongs to the second category. As someone who has personally benefited from her mentorship, I can speak to Asma's remarkable capacity for empathy, her phenomenal listening skills, and her generosity. She's invested in building a better world, and that includes lifting up the little people, encouraging them to embrace the best parts of themselves and take up the fight on their own terms. I could probably dedicate an entire podcast to talking about what an amazing person Esma is, the ways in which she has personally shaped my life and helped me to become a better, more engaged individual. But that's not what we're here for. So instead, I'm going to let her tell you about what she does to fight climate change and spread empathy with her environmental nonprofit, Green Muslims. So it's a completely volunteer-run organization um, in Washington, D.C. There are about six people or so on the board of the organization, and we're all people of faith, or we're all Muslims. 
so what Green Muslim sets out to do is have Muslims live the environmental spirit of Islam. So really like teach people about their faith through an environmental lens and have them embrace that. For example, Asma told us about how Green Muslims combine scripture and environmentalism during the month of Ramadan. During Ramadan, Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset every day, ending with iftars in the evening. And so when you have these iftars or these fast-breaking events, people bring tons and tons of food, and then it's not, you know, the next day you go to another iftar, like you go iftar hopping, it's like progressive Thanksgiving. And there's so much food that's left over. Asma and her friends at Green Muslims were bothered by this massive amount of food waste. So they started bringing leftovers to iftar events, combining the words and calling them leftars. You know, so we would do that and then make it about, okay, well, what's zero waste? Why are we doing this? Bringing a little bit of scripture. The leftars combine environmental and religious goals in a way that is relevant to the wider Muslim community and can be easily implemented by any Muslims practicing in Ramadan. It's a way of emphasizing the compatibility and overlap of religion and science, communities which are often perceived as being at odds with each other. And that's one of Green Muslims' goals, to show how the environment is already written into religion and emphasize why people of faith have a responsibility to protect it. There's so many verses in the Quran, there are about like 750 verses in the Quran that tell us about our relationship to the environment, or somehow reference the environment, I should say. Um, and I think that those types of readings aren't always picked up and always talked about. You know, we always have these debates on um, other theology within or other ideas within scripture. Um, so it's interesting because I think that even though it's not a new thing, it's always been there, but now it's a way to reach a newer audience. And it's, it's a really interesting way to get youth involved and to get youth to care about their religion and approach religion from a different lens. Green Muslims has an outreach program dedicated to connecting Muslim youth to environmental issues. We mentioned it earlier. It's called Arthena's Green. Deen means religion in Arabic. And it aims to get kids out in the environment and talking about their faith. With Arthena's Green, young Muslims are provided the opportunity to invest more in their faith and understand how it applies to the society they are living in today, while also taking on environmental problems. We would take these, we would take, you know, about 10 kids out every weekend for a month, for four weekends, and we would teach them about, okay, let's learn about water filtration. Let's talk about water. What are the stories within the Quran about water? Um, why is water important? And then make those ties and connections of like, this is what our scripture says about water, why it's important for us to protect as a resource because it is sacred to us. So if you talk about the environment as something that is sacred, I think it just flips the narrative and it like helps people of faith make that relationship or that connection to why it is something that they also have a role and they have a, I mean, they have a role in, in protecting. And connecting with youth is a good way of doing that. First, on a really basic level, younger generations will inherit the environmental issues present today, and as future religious leaders, will be tasked with tackling these problems. Second, young people are more open to new ideas, like caring about the environment and other issues, and are less entrenched in destructive habits that are difficult to break later in life. Arlene's Green makes the environment and climate change personal to young Muslims by tying it to their religious identity. That's important. 
because we're programmed to care about the issues that affect us most, especially those that threaten our cultural or religious communities. And if religion can be used as a tool to help people connect with climate change and identify and empathize with its impacts, we incentivize action. Thus far, scientists and environmentalists haven't been good at incentivizing action, at least not to the degree that they need to in order to mitigate the effects of climate change. And maybe that's because their dialogue is so impersonal, so grounded in facts and figures. In an objective space, are we all concerned about the future of our environment on some level? Probably. But is that threat personal for you right now as you're listening to this podcast? Climate reports, UN projections, and dire warnings about possible futures don't affect people like they should. They fail to get people to snap, to take the issue on as if it were their own, and to do something about it. And people need to snap to some extent in order to take meaningful action. I think it has to shift through stories and not just facts. We are so fact, and I, I've been struggling with this a lot where, you know, since the election of Donald Trump, everyone, and like so many climate deniers coming out and saying, you know, like, these are the facts, these are the facts, these are the facts. And I was like, if somebody doesn't believe you, it doesn't matter how many facts you throw in their face and say, you know, well, by 2100, well, we're all screwed and we're not going to be on this planet or that, you know, all the coastal states are going to be gone and low-lying island nations will no longer exist. You can say that and say that and say that to somebody, but until you say like, well, actually it's not that, it's that water is used as a political tool to deprive human populations in certain areas in the Middle East from surviving and put a story to it. And I think that is how we have to start changing this narrative is like, what is, how is this impacting humans? For so long, the face of climate change has been the polar bear. And I personally don't have any connection to a polar bear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I feel for it. Usma makes a really important point here. While climate change is certainly going to be more than inconvenient for polar bears, it's interesting that we choose them as the sort of mascot for this problem when it's going to affect human beings in ways that are infinitely more far-reaching and complicated. As we discussed at great length earlier in this podcast, climate change opens the door for a whole host of other problems, ranging from violent conflict to economic difficulty to societal collapse. And all human beings, regardless of whether they're aware of it or not, are going to have to grapple with some of those issues over the course of their lifetimes. In other words, climate change isn't a Bengal problem or a Muslim problem or a Christian problem or a problem belonging to any particular nation or population. It's a problem that all human beings are going to have to deal with in some form or another, and it's becoming increasingly evident that the approach we take in doing so matters a great deal. Scientists like Bryce, who we spoke to earlier, want to make people care about the repercussions of climate change, or at the very least, to make them acknowledge them. And tapping into faith communities could be a really great way of achieving that of connecting climate to something bigger and something that is deeply and intimately important to everyone. Part four, Holt, Jason, and Susan are here to tell you about what's happening today. 
We don't need to hypothesize about how climate change will produce suffering, unrest, and ultimately conflict around the world. It's already happening in Syria. From 2006 to 2009, Syria experienced a serious drought, likely worsened by climate change, which caused food and water shortages and motivated millions to migrate from rural to urban areas. The drought and its related issues motivated Syrians to speak out against the Assad regime, whose economic policies also worsened the situation. This acted as a catalyst for the underlying political unrest in Syria and set a foundation of strife and conflict that eventually grew into civil war in 2011. Although it was not the only factor in Syria, climate change and the extended drought was a crucial part of inciting the Syrian people. And if the climate projections being produced by scientists around the world are accurate, Syria is only the beginning. So, the United Nations predicts 200 million to 1 billion migrants by the year 2050. This does not just include those labeled climate refugees, but also others that may be indirectly affected by the changing climate and forced to migrate. It is important to note that these refugees will not be distributed equally across the world. The vast majority will be coming from the Middle East and South Asia. These migrations come in times of crisis domestically. These crises open space for insurgents and extremist groups to fill the void in capacity that fragile governments or underdeveloped governments cannot. This often devolves into warlordism, which not only creates human rights abuses, but can actually damage state capacity in other ways, um, such as infrastructure, resources, and capital. And so it can affect not only the locality that the warlord or insurgent group is operating in, but also the ability of the state to support other parts of the country that are also in serious need. States in and around the region where climate change is going to have the greatest effect will be receiving migrants from these countries. But also, states that are neighboring countries at war are much more likely to experience conflict themselves. And so even if a state is not affected by the extremes of climate change and has the capacity to support some migrants from that area, it doesn't mean that conflict will not develop or conflict will not bleed over international borders. These issues and tensions do not stop where lines are drawn on a map. States that might believe they are not going to be affected by climate change or have the capacity to support migrants in their area or are unable and unwilling to integrate change into their own country domestically will be affected by conflict in other areas. There's no question about that. Um, in today's globalized economy, there will be effects in terms of international law and human rights there will be effects. And also, international arms movement must also be considered, especially looking at the Middle East and where arms will be flowing outwards as other states are trapped or incapacitated by climate change and climate refugees. The Syrian civil war began with an intense multi-year drought that is also affecting other countries in the Middle East. Fortunately, collaborative efforts are underway to contain the negative effects from the water shortage, and they're being carried out in a really unexpected place. Jason's here to tell you more. In 2013, representatives from Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinian Authority signed an agreement establishing the Red Sea Dead Sea Pipeline Project, which will provide clean water for Israel and Jordan by investing in joint desalination plants and through the construction of a pipeline connecting the two seas. The pipeline especially forges a literal connection between the two historically opposed nations and marks one of the only examples of regional cooperation between rivaling parties. This historic agreement addresses two pressing issues, shortage of clean water and rapid contraction of the Dead Sea. 
And what's incredible is the recognition that water, a resource they all share, is a common problem, one they have to solve collaboratively. It represents more than a channel built on a border. It represents the mutual trust and commitment between the two parties. A willingness to put aside differences with Israel and hope for a better water future. Now, this dialogue is important on a multitude of levels, but we don't want you to forget that it constitutes an interfaith exchange. A majority of Jordanians are Muslim, and Israel is a Jewish state. And while the collaboration between Israel and Jordan obviously has a lot of political and economic connotations, it also represents an unprecedented move to overcome social and religious differences to solve a pressing problem. Fortunately, Israel and Jordan aren't the only two countries participating in interfaith dialogue on an international stage. Susan looked into these efforts. At COP22, the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Marrakesh, which coincidentally occurred the week after President Trump was elected, more than 300 religious leaders from over 50 countries signed an interfaith climate statement urging leaders to take action to lower carbon emissions and support renewable energy plans. Unfortunately, since taking office, Donald Trump has made it clear that he is not supportive of efforts to combat climate change. But we're seeing other actors picking up the slack. Many of the faith-based groups at COP22 pledged to continue their work by focusing instead on city and state governments. Almost 50 developing countries committed to aim for 100% green energy moving forward. More and more, we're seeing the faith community become engaged with climate change discussions. Last September, Pope Francis took a strong stance on the climate change debate during a global address on a World Day of Prayer by agreeing that global warming is due to human activity and actually called climate change a sin. He called on Catholics to become more conscientious consumers and to stop sinning by contaminating the environment. In North Dakota, where there have been protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline since April last year, more than 500 clergy and people of faith across all denominations joined the Standing Rock Sioux Nation and its supporters last November in a day of solidarity. So what does all of this mean? Interfaith dialogue is being used to address a variety of global issues, including those related to climate change. We bring these efforts and initiatives to light to show you that these actions are not only possible, but represent necessary conditions for current and future solutions. This podcast was a challenge to put together, precisely because the issues we're discussing and the solutions we're proposing are so deeply complicated and gigantic in scope. And we've covered a lot in the past 40 minutes, Big issues like the war in Syria, international climate change agreements, local efforts to combat climate change, and of course, interfaith dialogue. We hope you can see how these things are related, and more importantly, how we all have agency in determining how the world rises to meet these challenges. I want to take you back to the beginning for a second, to my conversation with Andrea Weiss. She's talking again about the election results and how her feelings about it led her to found Values and Voices. You know, what, what's the thing that I can control the most in response to what happened? And sort of at the minimum, you know, I can control what I say and do and bring about more love and compassion and acceptance in my own life through the kind of interactions that I have with people. So I think that's sort of on the most... That doesn't require any organization or any, you know, that's just, I think, something that people can do just on a very human level, um, just be 
more engaged with each other's lives and be opening to hearing other people's stories and where people are coming from. Community-wide, too. I mean, I think there's a great op-ed that one of our better writers, Mark Brettler, who's a professor at Duke, he wrote, it kind of went along with his letter, and he writes at the end of the op-ed that, you know, he's urging people to churn anxiety into action, and he says in there that we all have to do something, and he says, in fact, we have to do more than we think we can in response to the current situation, and that really resonated with me. Um, you know, this project was not at all on my plans. I was supposed to be writing a book this semester. I'm, you know, planning my son's bar mitzvah. This is just not what was on, on my plans to do, but, you know, sometimes you have to know sort of when something is worth kind of when just you feel compelled to do something that's really going to take your all and to put it all in. You have to sort of know when the circumstance requires you to give more of yourself and then to ask yourself what are ways that you can do that. Andrea and her project drive home a really important point. When you encounter an issue that matters to you, a problem that requires a pressing solution, taking action stops being a choice, and unity and collaboration become more important than ever in driving meaningful action. With each passing year, studies indicate that the effects of climate change are worsening, that more people are on the verge of being permanently displaced from their homes, and that water and food scarcity will result in increased conflict worldwide. So. Is it time to act? The answer, regardless of whether you're a scientist, a climate refugee, a person of faith, a citizen of the world, or all of those things, has to be yes. Because this is all of our problem, and it isn't going away. This episode of Global Voices was produced by Holt Alden, Jason Lee, and Susan O, oh, and was directed and edited by me, Sarah Wyman. Our theme music is composed by Kasia Kuzmala-Dalbeck, and this episode also featured music by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive. Special thanks to Erica Jahan, Asma Mahdi, Bryce Mitsunaga, and Andrea Weiss. For more information about the incredible work Esma and Andrea are doing, visit greenmuslims.org and valuesandvoices.com. This episode was produced in collaboration with UCLA Radio. Listen to them at uclaradio.com. Global Voices is a production of The Generation, UCLA's foreign affairs magazine, and the Burkle Center at UCLA. You can visit The Generation and listen to previous episodes of Global Voices at our website, the-generation.net.